There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Relentless Dairy on podbean.com. Welcome back to Land of Bourbon and Bad Decisions. This is Tyler with RelentlessDaring.com. And I know this is crazy. I've had like two weeks in a row where I'm putting out interview episodes. This week, I had the pleasure, nay, the honor to have Mr. Justin Robert Young, host of Politics, 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 on my show to discuss his other project, his history podcast, Raise the Dead. Um... I thought it was really fascinating about the parallels that can be drawn between the Trump campaign in 2016 and the Kennedy campaign back all the way in 1960. And just being able to see how everything kind of came together um, is a great interview. Absolutely had a blast talking with him. Um, So I'm going to run this interview. And then afterwards, I'm going to have the trailer for season one of Raise the Dead. Um, Again, it was absolutely fascinating to hear his opinions on how everything kind of meshed up comparing the 60s campaign to the 2016 campaign. And just kind of getting some insights on, you know, you know, post impeachment part two. And all that, we don't really go into looking forward. Uh, Justin's very busy. He has so many irons in the fire with the things that he's getting done, all of his projects. But it, it's a short interview, but it, it was great being able to talk with him and you know have him kind of you know share his experience and what he learned while working on this other project. So without further ado, here is Mr. Justin Robert Young to talk. Raise the dead. So I am happy to welcome Justin Robert Young to the land of bourbon and bad decisions here at Relentless Daring. Um, recently, I have gotten into his podcast, uh, Raise the Dead, which is a, a really good history podcast for you know looking back at the Nixon versus Kennedy election in 1960, and then further on to the Johnson versus Goldwater election in 64. Uh, Justin, how'd you, uh, how'd you get into getting into these uh, history podcasts? Uh, So the first one raised the dead season one. I have always been, and you know, it's kind of everything old is new again, although that's, I guess, the point of the podcast. Uh, uh, I loved the 1960 election because I love the conspiracy 
that is uh, that 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 surrounds it, and that is the audacious concept that J- Joe Kennedy, uh, uh, JFK's father, coordinated with the mob, for which Frank Sinatra was the go-between uh, to rig the election in JFK's favor. Uh, and and you know the more I kind of got into it, the more you sort of realize that this is a very famous election with two gigantic names in American history that really isn't understood or talked about. Uh, the, the the stuff that people tend to know about it are the the debates, the first televised debates, and even that the the lessons that are kind of canonically understood from that, I think are are vastly misrepresented. And so it just felt like a uh, a really rich target. And then once. Once I had kind of been in that world, once I, I I did, you know, seven or eight episodes in that world, I just kind of wanted to stay there. And and so that was the idea to make the sequel, the, the, the 1964 election, where all of our friends are, are back. I mean, uh, except for one. One of them, one of them gets written out in the first uh, uh, episode of season two. No spoilers, but uh, <laughs> uh, uh, one. One 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 major main character doesn't make it past the first uh, the first uh, twenty minutes of episode one of season two. Someone always has to die in the first episode. Yeah, you know you got to keep it fresh. You got to <laughs> right. keep it fresh. Um, and one thing I will say is listening to this, you know, we all think we know how our political system works as far as you know the presidential cycle. You know, we have the primaries. Then we get into the debates with the main nominees for each party. And I was kind of surprised to hear that, you know, the way we know it now really changed in 1960. Sure. Well, well, primaries were not the way that you got your nomination. And JFK was somebody that uh, really pioneered the idea of the primaries being a launching point. It's not until later that it's kind of formalized in the way that we really understand it today. But back in 1960, the primaries were looked at as kind of a death trap. Like, why would you go uh, uh, give your enemies at the convention proof that you're not something that the people want by actually going out and testing your medal with actual voters? It would be a far better idea for you to just make your hypothetical arguments to the right people at the convention and, and get voted in there. I mean, the, the, the conventions now are largely ceremonial affairs. Their things actually got done. Like there, there were actual power plays. That was where you saved all your powder and everything uh, uh, exploded at convention time. But, but Kennedy was somebody who realized that, in a media world that was very much evolving in 1960, the momentum you could gain by winning, like you still had to win all of them. You couldn't lose anything. But if you picked your battles right and you ran over your competition and you used the media to your advantage, you could look like an oncoming train come convention time. And nobody had really thought to do that in large part because not everybody had the same kind of money that the Kennedy family had. They were very rich, and they put together really the modern campaign. Every campaign that has happened since then on some level is is modeled after that 1960 Kennedy campaign. Right, and I, I like the way through this series, especially the first season, you draw a lot of parallels between 
uh, the Kennedy campaign and the Donald Trump campaign in yeah. such a way, way that uh, Donald Trump really utilized social media even more so than really the Obama campaign had done in 2012. Yeah, Obama gets credit for Facebook's uh, data harvesting. That was really the legacy of the Obama campaign. There's been a lot of different ways. And there's a there's a fun story in the liner notes of a season two episode about uh, the New Hampshire primary, which was not won by either frontrunner, uh, uh, Barry Goldwater or Nelson Rockefeller. It was won by Nixon's vice presidential candidate, uh, uh, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., because they had a bunch of kids that was like one half just a prank bro, uh, another half activist organizing that they were going to make Henry Cabot Lodge a write-in candidate. And the way that they did it was by utilizing a lot of voter registration email lists, basically, or not email lists, <laughs> but physical mailing lists. And so you've seen throughout history a lot of different ways to reach voters. And so from there it's like okay well voter uh, re voter registration uh, mailing addresses okay then in the 70s and 80s the next step beyond that was you would buy the subscription lists from magazines that were in demographics that you would want to uh, appeal to so conservative candidates would get the guns and ammo uh, uh subscriber list the uh, effete Democratic candidates that are mostly city dwelling would get the GQ or you know a, a, a subscriber list. Blah blah blah. The Obama gets credit for figuring out, an, in large part, with the help of Facebook. This is before Facebook giving political causes your data became very bad. Before it was very cool to do, uh, and and it was very futuristic. And Obama wore that on their sleeves, but they were not. Beyond using social media as a point of concept to do an end around media sources they didn't like, they never thought of it as a media generator in the way that Trump did. And that's truly where Trump and Kennedy were very similar. They looked at the media as a tool that they could utilize, not something to be avoided like Obama wanted to. They looked at, at it as something where we can put a coin in and they're going to do a dance for us. Uh, and, and as we, we talk about in, in season one, both of them did it to perfection. Right. And because with Donald Trump, with the advent of Twitter, he was able, he was able to issue yeah. a random nonsensical tweet and he adjusts the entire 24-hour news cycle for two days while they try to come up with what does kafefe mean? And yeah. And, and what, like you said in the, in the podcast, spoiler alert with Kennedy's family, having the money to be able to buy their own video production so they can record a speech and send off snippets to the major news outlets that's going to get distributed out. And it's like, here, we want you to see this. Well, I mean, more, more so than that. I mean, they were doing things that are still, that are now, just what you do in, in public relations flat out. Uh, the Kennedy family was one, was the first political entity, if not among the first private owners 
ever of a VCR. The VCR had been invented only years before, uh, and nobody but you know main like television production uh, uh, houses and and networks or stations and networks owned them except for the Kennedys. And so not only what they did was record every speech that Jack gave so he could watch it back and refine it, but more so they edited down key elements of his speech to 15, 30 second and one minute chunks, knowing that in local news, those are the holes that need to be fit. And then they would, without prompting, send these tapes to local news outlets in markets with messages that they wanted to resonate in those markets. There's no greater example of this than the Houston Ministerial Convention, which happens in uh, uh, the fall of that race, fairly close to uh, election day, where JFK, being the first Catholic candidate, is invited to speak at this Houston Ministerial Convention. A lot of people in his campaign think that it is a total death trap, that all these ministers are going to want for nothing more than to embarrass and destroy the first Catholic candidate. They don't want a Catholic in there. That is that is a major problem. Both JFK, RFK, and uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson believe, hey, look, if you play this right, yes, it looks like a death trap, but if you can survive it, you're going to get all the more uh, uh, press attention for it. And indeed he did. He gave a great speech. Uh, there was a mandatory Q&A. He handled, that was where people thought everything was going to go off the rails. He handled that excellently. But more specifically, he then takes that performance, edits it down, and specifically highlights the idea that if you don't support me, then what you are doing is highlighting the bigotry that can come along to any religion. Uh, that also read well with uh, Jews, African Americans, uh, and, and other uh, Hispanics, key voting blocks for the, the rapidly changing Democratic Party, which you have to remember is in 1960 very much a, a party at war with itself. You have a lot of Southern Democrats that are, are segregationists, out-and-out segregationists, and then you have a lot of Northern Democrats that are union-focused, a little bit more like the Democratic Party that we see today. It's, it's that that gets him over the hump with a lot, of these, uh, a lot of these groups, which in the case of Jewish voters is remarkable considering the fact that JFK's father is a literal fan of Hitler. Like, I'm not being hyperbolic. A literal fan of the man Adolf Hitler. Uh, so uh, 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 that that is that is the power of his media strategy, right? And again, this is something that we see it all the time. Where we kind people in the political realm, they kind of they bust on you know, those politicians who aren't so good at working the media. Um, like if you get like sometimes you get the guys who aren't very good off the cuff. Which I think that's where one of those, one of those things where Donald Trump was great in the primaries, especially when you're going up against 16 other people and you could rapid fire, even if you yeah. weren't 100% on point, which he rarely was. Um, just being able to have enough facts and figures and you're able to really work that to your advantage. But, you know, 
you get like Ted Cruz, incredibly smart, but he just lacked the personality. Well, Ted Cruz's problem, I think, is uh, like a lot of very ambitious politicians. He his his ambition outstrips who he is. We don't know who he is. You know, is he hardcore constitutionalist that thought that Donald Trump was an awful person? Or is he Trump trained supporter guy? Is he where we're, we're going to challenge the, the results of, of this election? Or is he like he is today? Uh, I don't know when this is going to run, but we are recording this on Joe Biden's inauguration day. <laughs> yes. And, and Ted Cruz is, is, tweeting like oh the beauty of uh, the turning over of power like it's like well homie you were out here two weeks ago talking about how we needed to uh, you know take another look at these election results so i i don't know i, I think for him it, it is more i think he's actually a fairly capable talker the problem for him is what he's talking about and those are problems that for kennedy and trump even when they were inconsistent you had a sense of them, right? You had a sense of who Jack Kennedy was. You had a sense of who Trump was. And that worked for both of them, both as a great advantage and a great disadvantage because for uh, Kennedy, he was statesmanlike, but also maybe a little aloof and over his head and, and, and overpraised for Trump. He was very down to earth you saw maybe some of yourself either good or bad elements to it but on the other side if you you don't hate anybody anymore or and, and the person that you hate the most in life are the people that you know the best and i feel like that certainly came out on the other side oh for sure um because i remember in 2016 i was sitting in afghanistan looking at my mail-in ballot my absentee ballot from missouri going I'm just going to skip over the president section. I was going to do, vote everything else because I was very, very, very uh, wary of voting for Trump. And even you know, with the constitutional party with uh, Evan McMurray with or the Libertarian Party, it's like, I don't I, I can't. So and then 26 is a fascinating election, a fascinating election. For sure. I. I missed a lot of that cycle due to things that were outside of my control. Yeah, <laughs> Afghanistan. Think, yeah. To be honest, to be honest, it might be better understood in history, but <laughs> probably. Um, but it, it's just kind of crazy though. See how similar these two periods really were and just being able to compare and contrast them the way you did in your series. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think that the biggest thing that attracted me to that parallel was the fact that a lot of Trump people were fascinated by Kennedy. And that was something that really surprised me, mostly because the Republican orthodoxy, as far as I was uh, aware, was that Kennedy was this overhyped playboy who, uh, uh, if, if the media didn't whitewash all of his sins would be looked at as a far different person. And then the fact that also they thought he cheated at the beginning anyway. Um, but, you know, you read how Steve Bannon talks about Kennedy and you read about like where they believe part of what led Kennedy to glory was 
that he did have a populist undertone to him. He had a let's shake it up, let's change some things kind of undertone to him, and they wanted to bring that to Donald Trump, or at least those around him. Uh, uh, the point that I make in the podcast is I don't think that this is a, a, a coincidence that that you know this was something that was done on purpose, down to the fact that uh, Kennedy's one of Kennedy's slogans during that uh, campaign is "Get America Moving Again." Gamma, you know, you only have to re rearrange a few letters to make MAGA. Right, and that's one thing I will say that looking at the two of them, they were both very aspirational. I mean, at his own inaugural address, Kennedy is, you know, saying we're going to put a man on the moon before the end of the decade. Uh, Donald Trump, even with his, uh, with his exit speech that was released yesterday afternoon, you know, I'm a builder. I look at skylines and I see unlimited imagination. You know, and that it's one of those things where it's like, some some of the some of it, like you said was St the way Steve Bannon looked at Kennedy. Obviously, they kind of manufactured some of that with Donald Trump. But at the same time, that those aspirational goals are still partial are still into Donald Trump because I he built a casino. Yeah, it failed. He opened a winery. Yeah, it failed. But I, he just keeps trying things, even whether they work out or not. Well, you know, the, the, the biggest difference between the two is that Jack had Bobby and a few other ride or die people that were his people. And yes, he disagreed with them every once in a while. Yes, he wouldn't always take their advice, but it never broke down in the same way that Trump's orbit, which was always at war. I mean, that's, that's the biggest thing is that Trump never really had an inner council. In fact, according to reports, he is somebody that enjoyed the idea that people around him were constantly at war and fighting and vying for his attention because he felt that that would bring out the best ideas. Uh, and, and ultimately in politics, sometimes, especially when there's a pandemic and people are mm -hmm. looking desperately for calm, uh, chaos is not the, the, the method. And I think that both before and after COVID, specifically after COVID, you saw some of the the, the hallmarks of, of what happens when there's no coherent thought line that goes through all of it. And, and I wonder whether or not Trump realizes it. I mean, he pardoned Steve Bannon this morning. And I wonder if part of that is not him looking back and saying like, damn, uh, there, 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 there should have been somebody close to me that was there the whole time instead of ripping out and replacing somebody whenever there was a bump in the road. Right. And say what you want about Steve Bannon. I always kind of viewed him as, as a sycophant who would do everything for Donald Trump. And if he had to, I, you know, with all the leaks in the first, what, six, seven months of the Trump administration. Yeah, Rance Priebus got thrown under the bus as the mole, letting everything out of it. I wonder how much that was uh, Steve Bannon also working to kind of undermine things. But, yeah, that's the speculation on my end. But, because I'm... Well, you know, I think... The, the, no, the, go ahead. The, the thing with Steve Bannon is 
you, you got to remember that he has, has been looking for a Donald Trump, was looking for a Donald Trump for a long time. And then Breitbart championed a bunch of people before Trump came around. Up to and including Sarah Palin and, and a few others. Uh, he wanted a battering ram. And he was going to get behind people and give them the win behind their back because he very much believed, and, and I think we have seen, that weaponizing an online audience is a huge part of winning, uh, winning the day in our, in our modern politics. Uh, where his acumen was after that is up for question, and whether or not he was always the best at picking the people to push to the moon, cough, cough, Roy Moore, cough, cough, uh, uh, is, is also very much in doubt. So, uh, uh, you know, like, like most people, you, you tend to overhype the wins and kind of discount the losses. But, uh, uh, I think that he does have a very smart political mind and he certainly had one in that moment. Right. And I, I'm just looking back to the last four years and like you said, some of the, uh, some of the pardons that came out last night this morning where it's like wait the drain the swamp guy is letting the swamp creatures out of their cages to run around again i feel like the i feel like the grift i expected in 2016 finally came to fruition but (laughs) you know that's an interesting one because part of what some of the scuttlebutt is is that trump playing as nice as he has lately and just trying to avoid a senate conviction that's that's one of the Uh, rumors i've heard yeah yeah Uh, aside from one reference to the china virus we have seen (laughs) precious little rally trump um uh, uh, around in his final couple days The, the the scuttlebutt is is that you know as much as the maverick trump may have pardoned Julian Assange and Edward Snowden and, and, and done these kinds of things that were very popular amongst his base, um, that no interesting pardons and possibly even this lobbyist loophole uh, uh, thing were, were, were there to, to preserve the fact that, that he would not be uh, the first convicted impeached uh, a president of the United States. He would just remain the first man. Uh, so nice. They impeached him twice. <laughs> right. And, and that and that's one of those things that hearing today about the whole possibility. I mean, Chuck Schumer's already said the trial is going to go on in the Senate. And I, I've heard from some constitutional scholars that, well, it, they can't do it because he's already out of office. But um, as Andrew Heaton had pointed out to me when I spoke with him last Friday, that eh, there is a precedent for um, you know censuring a president out of you know once they're out of the office. So we'll have to see how that one goes. Well, the question, yeah, but the question would be whether or not the Democrats want to settle for that. The question really is how much time the, the Democrats want to waste on that. Um, because these first 100 days are going to be very important, specifically since they do control the Senate via tiebreaker. So, uh, uh, 
how much does Donald Trump matter to them going forward? Right now, you've got a lot of strident uh, uh, members of the Democratic base that are like, no, everything needs to be punished. Uh, uh, there, there can be no crime without punishment. Very law and order. They're all tweeting law and order. Uh, but there is some real politic here. And, and you have to wonder if you are the Republican leadership, do you want, like, we're, we're, we're not more than a, like three weeks ago, four weeks ago from everybody saying, you want to know what? The, the, the future of the Republican Party isn't very dim, you know? Like, yeah, Trump lost, but he's Trump. We did better than we were expecting in the House. We did better than we were expecting in the Senate until Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe... We take the party out of the country club. We take it to the dive bar and we've got a new, we got a new way of doing things and we can erode core democratic constituencies with Hispanics and African-Americans, but without Trump. And if you're ejecting Trump from the party, is that something they want to do? Do they want to sever their party in half or do they just want to kind of talk about it and then ultimately not do anything, which is usually where I put my money when it comes to anything Congress related. Right. Cause even, even uh, James Clyburn said, wait the hundred days. Don't rush into this right now. Let's, let's push Biden's hundred day plan, you know, cause he has legislative things that he wants to get done. And if the Senate's being held up doing a, doing the impeachment trial, you know, whether you believe it's a sham or not, it, it's going to be a damper on trying to get Joe Biden's policies through. So I would be willing to bet that there would be some party pressure on Schumer to either backburner it or after a hundred days and it just disappears. Well, but that's, that's up to the house, right? So the house hasn't tr- transmitted the articles of impeachment when Cl- what Clyburn is saying that they should hold on to him till, to, till a hundred days, but this is not going to be something that goes quietly into the night because nothing Trump related goes quietly into the night. So, uh, uh, but then again, maybe the media will play along and uh, you will know here. I'll, I'll tell this to you and your listeners <laughs> watch for the headline talking about how smart it'll be for Joe Biden to a push or the Senate Democrats do not push an impeachment. If you start seeing the wise sage decision-making being praised, that's when you'll know that there is a, a, a maybe something afoot. All right. Well, I understand that you are a busy man. You've got things you have to get done. Thank you for uh, making time to come on my show. I greatly appreciate it, Justin. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Anytime, sir. All right. Thank you. Uh, hopefully I have you back, you know, find something else amusing to talk about besides just Donald Trump and the end of a end of an era. <laughs> hey man, I'm like, I'm like a, 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 a C and spell. You just uh, press the button and I'll, I'll, I'll dispense political opinions. <laughs> I'm, I'm like a vending machine. All right. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Justin. Thank you so much, brother. Yep. Bye. Bye man. Peace out. Richard Nixon 
and John F. Kennedy. Real quick, which one of them is more like our current president, Donald Trump? Keep that answer to yourself for a second. Did you know that Richard Nixon ran against John F. Kennedy for the presidency in 1960? You know, for an election bidding two of the most famous names in presidential history against each other, there's not a lot of talk about it. Not as much written about it as you'd certainly expect. In fact, what most people know, if anything, about that election is the fact that they were in the first televised presidential debate. It's a really interesting one, though. It pits a member of a popular two-term president's cabinet against an outsider running without permission. Both feature an unheard-of use of new media, and both end with the losing side screaming to anyone who will listen that the election turned on the help of nefarious outside sources. Sound familiar? What if I told you that Trump's team knew all about the 1960 election? What if I told you that they worked hard to cultivate a Kennedy-esque mystique around their candidate? What if I told you that this is something that was put into motion the moment Trump announced his candidacy? Here's something about the first televised debate that you might not know. At the end of Kennedy's opening statement, he punctuates his big introduction with his slogan, Get America Moving Again. So I'm going to ask you again, but this time I'll qualify it. As a candidate... Who is Trump more like, Kennedy or Nixon? 2016 is an election no one saw coming, but what if we were looking in the wrong direction? What if the only way to understand the biggest upset in presidential history is to find the time it happened before? That's what we're going to do here. But unlike 2016... As we are in the 60th anniversary of the 1960 election, we know all the dirty details. Hospitalizations, double crosses, blood feuds birthed and dirty tricks played, celebrity glitz, mistresses and booze-soaked politics the way it used to be. Amongst it all, an origin story to some of the most iconic figures American politics has ever seen, including the moment that Richard Nixon is told that somebody stole personal information about him that could capsize his career with only hours before Election Day. For everyone else, it's just old news. And old news dies and becomes history. But on this podcast, oh yeah, we raise the dead. Raise the Dead is available now on all podcasting platforms. Get the entire series, including a bonus episode in audiobook or ebook form from our website, raisethedeadpodcast.com. I believe we can get this country moving again. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.